0: Welcome to Legal AF. The A stands for analysis and the F stands for friends. We are your legal analysis for friends. Ben Micellis, managing partner of Garragos and Garragos, And you, of course, know me as one of the founding brothers of Midas Touch and here with my colleague and great friend, managing partner of Zupano, Patricius and Popak, Michael Popak. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Ben. I,
1: I just found out you're managing partner of your firm. I like that, too.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you know, if you say it enough times, it becomes true is, is <laughs> kind of my philosophy. And so I think even when I was in law school, I was saying I was the managing partner of, uh, of yeah. my firm. I was the managing When associate. I was the paralegal.
1: Yeah, I was the managing <laughs> associate of my firm for a long time. But, you know, uh,
0: one of the things I want to talk with you about is of course our new show. I want to talk about um, our legal careers and our backgrounds and what led us to do this show. And then of course, I want to start getting into some of the legal news and the format that this show is going to take. And so I think it's helpful if we just introduce how we met each other, Michael, and then we can talk about our background. So we met actually on opposite sides of a case. And I won't get into the case in specifics, but I was on the plaintiff side of that of that case. You were on the defense side of the case. It was a highly contentious um, litigation over, you know, controversial uh, facts. Um, but through that case, uh, you know, I think we were able to achieve what is rare these days in law. But what occurred you know many decades ago or what we believe occurred many decades ago or that could just be the lore they tell us you know when the legal profession was first created but we developed a a friendship which developed into a great friendship and a very you know incredible working relationship where we do a lot of cases together
1: yeah yeah that that was a that's a nice highlight to our both of our careers and uh, it's unique um we're both very tenacious advocates and trial lawyers um, representing our client's interest. I was in-house global head of litigation for a Wall Street firm. You were on the other side, as you described, taking on one of our subsidiaries, high profile subsidiaries in a high profile case. And while we fought tooth and nail about the case, we always kept it on very professional levels. And I think we developed a deep abiding respect for each other and our approaches to the case. And when I left that Wall Street firm and decided to return to private practice, you were literally one of the first phone calls that I made because of our friendship and my admiration for you and what you were accomplishing. And I, I think it started something like this. Ben, I'm going back into private practice. And I don't know if you remember your response to that. What did I say? You said, Popak, you're going back to private practice. We want to work with you. <laughs> exactly. We want to try cases with you. It was, it was literally like that. I think I was, I was sitting in the, my study just trying to figure out my next steps. I hadn't even, I haven't even, haven't even decided yet on the law firm that I was gonna join or the partners in Miami that I was gonna, I was gonna join forces with. And, and you were right out of the gate. Let's find ways to work together. And, um, and from there, it really has developed into a, a, a one of the most rewarding aspects of my return to private practice, frankly has been working with Garagas and Garagas, working with you particularly, and watching you from day, it wasn't day one, it was day two of Midas Touch. I said, what is this Midas Touch that I just saw, you know, that you launched? What's that all about? I think you had, what was the number you told me you had at the moment that I made contact with you over Midas?
0: Uh, we maybe had a few hundred followers at the time, maybe. yeah, yeah. It was probably very late March, we're almost celebrating the one year anniversary of Midas Touch. We're about 11 months and 17 days, uh, you know, into it right now. But to your credit, you were one of the very first people. Maybe I was your first call when you returned to private practice, (laughs) but you were the first person who believed in Midas Touch. And and early on, we would do these style, you know, podcasts, we would post small clips of them, on you know on on Twitter and on other social media, and they would get a few hundred views. You know now all the videos get millions of views. But you were there from the very beginning, giving great legal analysis, and you developed quite the fan base very early on <laughs> amongst the Midas Touch followers who kept on saying, you, "When's Popak coming? When's Popak I, coming I, back?"
1: I remember once on um, something as esoteric as the Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. I got like a million TikTok views. A, at that moment, I didn't quite know what TikTok was. I thought it was for you know, preschool kids to do dance routines in the middle of the street. I didn't realize there was gonna be a following that would watch really hardcore analysis of constitutional and legal issues that were, you know, that were sitting on that site. So that was fun. And, and I don't know if you remember, we even had people in my law firm write very interesting articles on artificial intelligence and all sorts of other cutting uh, high, uh, high concept legal concepts that you posted on what was then your Midas Touch website. I think it evolved into something else. Uh, but at the time, you know, Jordy was looking for content and we were supplying these articles, you know, at a pretty rapid pace and he was making them look great with all sorts of graphics and, and all sorts of things. So, no, I've been a big believer of both you, your brother's Midas Touch, you know how you described the business model, the political aspect of it, the counterweight to the Fox Newses and the News Maxes of the world. I mean, I don't know if you ever envisioned that rocket ship taking off as quickly and as successfully as it did, but I was certainly hopeful that it would, and I wanted—I really wanted to be a, a early an early supporter and adopter and a big promoter of it.
0: And of course, you've been a big supporter. You've been our lawyer as we've been threatened with numerous lawsuits and have been involved in numerous lawsuits in our very early stages. But just so those listening out there uh, you know, know your background, my background, so they know they're not just talking to two people playing lawyers on Legal AF podcast, yeah. if you can give the Cliff Notes version sure. of where you went to law school. And very briefly, you know, your career trajectory that brought you here today.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And and I will do it briefly. It's always difficult, even for lawyers and trial lawyers to talk about themselves, but I'll I'll give it a go. So I started my law career at Duke Law School in North Carolina. And and right after that, when I graduated, I started with uh, two very large, what we call Wall Street law firms, uh, global law firms based here in New York. And worked in both white collar criminal defense and general litigation and securities litigation, primarily on the defense side. I, I, I've been until you and I connected, while I've done a fair amount of plaintiff's work, I've been mainly defense oriented, which I think is the reason you and I work so well together on our plaintiff side cases. Um, and then from there, um, I went down to Miami because uh, I really wanted to be a, a trial lawyer when I grew up. And And accomplishing that in New York at these major firms is really not a not a goal, not a dream for most people. If you're in New York at a major firm and you try one case in your entire career, you're doing okay. And that's not how I foresaw what I wanted to do with my life and my career. So I went down to Miami and eventually I was with a very well-known firm and based in Miami in South Florida. And before it was all said and done, I tried over 40 cases Uh, trial, uh, jury trials, federal trials, state trials, arbitrations all around the country. And then about five years ago, now it's about six years ago, I was invited by a a major Wall Street client of mine to come back to New York and to be the global head of litigation and all things employment related for this 15,000 person company that's, uh, you know, I, I won't mention the name, but it's very, very well known. And you know that was a new um, opportunity for me, a new challenge for me. Uh, they wanted me to build from scratch an in-house trial team. Um, when I got there, they were handling none of their cases in-house by themselves. They all had outside counsel. By the time I left, uh, the, the uh, team that I built and I were handling over 70 cases worldwide. We tried 23 cases in four years which for those out there listening, that is a tremendous body of work and trials. They were arbitrations, they were state and federal cases all across America. We had a very good track record. I think we were, I don't know, 19 and four, or 20 and three, You know, Tom Brady type numbers. Um, but I have really accomplished all that I wanted to accomplish there having built that team from scratch, uh, being a, a senior executive at a company and I was chomping at the bit to get back to full-time trial work. That, that's my passion. That's what I'm, that's my talent. And so I decided after four years to return to private practice. And that's when you and I connected because we had met on that case. Um, and, you know, I reached out to people like you and I decided, yep, there's a need for Michael Popok to return to private practice. There's a lot of great cases. And, and I'll, I'll say it for the listening audience. You, you gave me the first case for the new firm of Zampano, Patricius, and Pofok. In fact, a week before we opened our doors, you and I had filed that case in uh, in federal court in California uh, with our with my firm name under your firm name. And my partners in Miami were like, "How did you get a case already? We haven't even opened the doors." I said, "Well, the magic the magic that is Ben Ben, Salas and Michael Pofok. What can I tell you?"
0: We've worked on a lot of great cases since then, the abbreviated version of my career, and lots of people know me for Midas Touch. A lot of listeners generally know my story. I went to Georgetown Law. I was a civil rights litigator, litigated some of the most contentious, high-profile police shooting, police brutality, and misconduct cases, particularly in the Fresno, Bakersfield area, did lots of catastrophic personal injury cases. I still do catastrophic personal injury cases. Michael Popak still does catastrophic personal injury cases and civil rights cases. So part of what we're going to be talking about on the show are cases that we are actually working on. And we will invite listeners if they have issues, if you have cases, if you know people who have been injured or you want to just pick our brain on issues, feel free to reach out to us. Um, we want this to be interactive and we want to be as helpful as we can be. Um, I led the Colin Kaepernick litigation against the NFL um, and some other high profile litigations. Not only do I do litigation, I do a bunch of transactional work. And of course, I started Midas Touch a little bit uh, longer than a year ago at this point, a little less than a year ago at this point, almost a year as of March 28th was when we would have started. And May, we officially became a political action committee. And through this relationship, we've been battling and having lots of legal battles through through Midas Touch. I think as Midas Touch grew, um, people started coming after us. Um, uh, and you were there shoulder to shoulder with us. And we should talk about some of those Midas Touch litigation yeah. histories. So let's first talk about the Fox News uh, cease and desist and our yeah. response to that.
1: Yeah, that that. Uh... I don't know if that was the first one or Kelly Senator. then Senator Kelly Loeffler was the first one, but they came really one right after the other. Midas Touch got a cease and desist letter from uh, Fox News and its lawyers claiming that the now famous Midas Touch viral video, many of which use clips from Fox News using their own words against them, um, was somehow copyright infringement that Midas Touch didn't have the license to use those clips, didn't have the right to use those without compensation, and should stop using them and take all those uh, viral videos that were getting you know, 1 million, 3 million, 4 million hits, uh, take them down. I mean, it certainly during the, the election season. So we, we really know they were doing the bidding for the Trump campaign. And uh, we wrote back, um, I wrote back, and with your help, a very succinct letter. that that told them to go um, AF themselves. uh, And more particularly said that the use of that material is fair use under copyright law. It's fair commentary under copyright law that in in the world of First Amendment and social commentary that Midas touch is allowed to use that and to use it for their own purposes in parody or, or criticism, social criticism, political criticism and that they should go, in short, jump in a lake. And uh, we never heard from them again. And
0: they certainly never heard talk, from them again. And never just, if you can, yeah. as we try to educate those listening to what these different legal doctrines is as, as we tell these stories, um, of course, they'll know the First Amendment, you know, the, the freedom of speech. And we as a political organization, might as touch have a freedom of speech, but can you talk to briefly the fair use doctrine yeah. And why political organizations like us and, and others um, and even documentarians often refer to this fair use to use footage um, of, of things that are in the public sphere um, in our videos and why that's not a copyright infringement.
1: Yeah. So let's start from the copyright angle. Anyone that creates something of artistic value, whether it's a play and a article a news report, a movie, um, some, some version of music, any of that instantly has a copyright that's owned in common law, and maybe it may be under federal law if they've registered it with the federal uh, Patent and Trademark Office, but, but you enjoy if you've created something a copyright. And there's no doubt about that. And there's no argument about that. The question is, can a second person use an aspect of your copyrighted artistic expression for their own commercial use or other use. And what the law says is yes, if it's being done, not just to make money, right? You're not just copying literally the the painting behind me or the, uh, the, the audio track and using it and just ripping it off, but you're using it for some sort of criticism, parody, Social commentary, or the like, because how are you supposed to make the criticism if in a fair, open society, a First Amendment society? How are you supposed to do that if you don't actually use the clip? And and you know, there's very famous cases, including you know, Hustler Magazine and the now recently deceased Larry Flint, at a very famous case in, involving fair use um, because he used the picture of a very famous person. Uh, and he put him in a very um, anatomically impossible position. I'll put it that way. And that person, that, that religious leader, took exception to it and argued that, that he, he wasn't, um, that they had violated his copyright in many other ways. So what the law says very succinctly is that you, Midas Touch and others, are allowed to show clips of things previously produced in which somebody has a copyright if the purpose of doing it is commentary, criticism, satire, and the like, even if you make money off doing it.
0: So that was the Fox News. You sent them a letter. They ran away as soon as you did that. (laughs) Then we got the letter from Kelly Loeffler, former Senator Kelly Loeffler, AKA Looting Loeffler. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so same thing. We got a very detailed letter from her law firm. I think it was on behalf of Citizens for Loeffler. Uh, claiming that the, you know, looting Loeffler video, which was obviously driving her up the wall, right at the moment she was in a very contentious and now losing campaign to keep her seat in Georgia. Um, And we get this very strong cease and desist letter that uh, we need to take down uh, Kelly Loeffler, um, anything related to her, videos related to her, and and that it was... um, uh, it was uh, uh, filled with uh, def- defamatory material, false material. I mean, it was really just using her own words against her. They just didn't- he used
0: her words, and right. then we used the uh, the ah. clips of yeah. Jeanine, Judge Janine Pirro and Tucker Carlson, who had referred to her as a looter um, yeah. when she was selling and buying certain stocks for her portfolio based on the inside information she had received yeah. in secret Senate intelligence briefings. Yeah. So we were using the words of Fox before they got their script together and they realized, oh shit, we have to cover for her every second and we can't be against her. Yeah, um, But that's their initial reaction was um, what most of the public's reaction was in the early days of COVID. Why are you selling and trading stocks off of inside information? And she went livid, especially because we showed it was Fox News hosts um, who, were, who were saying that. So we went after her. Uh, we also exposed her law firm. Um, and I think that that law firm also that represented her in that, um, they also were hosting a transition to Biden event later on, <laughs> which we were, you know, using to just show the hypocrisy of these, of these law firms. And that's an interesting point, too, before we get to our Marjorie Talley Green case. Law firms have particularly come under fire for their roles in uh, subverting democracy. Um, I think that there's been a general view, as, especially as someone who has a criminal defense practice in the law firm, like... I think I'm okay with the concept. I don't think I know I'm okay with the concept of uh, allowing individuals who are accused of crimes to have representation. That goes back to Adams representing the British and and President Lincoln representing, you know, people who are accused of crimes and people who eventually were proven to be criminals. Where to me, the line was drawn is when you actually aided and abetted The overthrow of democracy and subverting and using your powers as a law firm to subvert democracy. So, we did a video at Midas Touch called Shame on Jones Day because Mm -hmm. Jones Day, a large, very respected law firm, was helping out with some of these lawsuits, particularly one in the Supreme Court to throw out votes. I believe that one was in Pennsylvania. And even since we made that video, Jones Day, which is usually ranked amongst one of the most powerful large law firms in the world, has muted and has uh, precluded any comments um, on their tweets. Um, and and Michael, though they're able to do that, even though it's cowardly, because they're a private they're a private uh, company, right? Like, that's, there's that's no true. issue with them doing it. Even though I think the issue is that they are complete cowards for doing
1: yeah, it. There's no First Amendment issue presented, right? And why is that? Yeah, we'll talk about it when we talk about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, because the First Amendment is only a protection that citizens have against the government, the U.S. government doing something to abridge or interfere with freedom of expression in the First Amendment. See, a lot of people throw that term around like, well, that's you, you've taken away my First Amendment because I'm not allowed to do something on my gaming platform that I'm on or I've been muted by Jones Day, unless they are acting under the color of the federal government, which sometimes they are and we and lawyers like you and I make that argument in a compelling way. But if it's just citizen Doe against citizen Doe, there is no First Amendment right that you have to your freedom of expression. It's only against government interference of that improper interference of that right.
0: that brings us to where we did bring a lawsuit, our third legal battle together in in Midas Dutch and under a year against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, who's a QAnon conspiracy worshiper, um, who uh, mocked transgender rights, um, uh, who literally stalked Uh, 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 survivors of school shootings and accuse them of being um, actors and making up the school shooting. Uh, This was a person who was elected to Congress. Um, This is someone who's a close ally of Donald Trump's, which Mm -hmm. just tells you how fucked up our political system is that that takes place. And frankly, that's the new face of the GOP of the GOP Um, I have friends who are conservative Um, I respect people who have conservative values but uh, stalking children who survived and saw their classmates die from school shootings and calling them actors that's the most radical view that there is there's nothing conservative about that that's crazy
1: she also said that 9-11 was a hoax Um, And I worked for an organization that is one of the major survivors of 9-11. So I took that very, very personal. Um, Yeah, she's out of her mind. She's a QAnon-backed person. In the history of the Congress, she may be one of the only people who ever got stripped by vote of Congress of her committee assignments because the vast majority of Congress felt she wasn't qualified to be in any committee at all, let alone the Education Committee, which is what the Republican leadership elect decided they, sh- they should put her in. So she's a denier of school shootings. She believes they're hoax, including Sandy Hook, right? And yet they put her, they try to put her on the Education Committee and the rest of Congress said, no, th- that's a bridge too far. And they stripped her of all her committee assignments.
0: Yeah, that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. So of course, Uh, Midas Touch, uh, as a political action committee, as a group that is one of the most significant proponents of democracy uh, today, criticized her um, for these viewpoints. And she responded by blocking us um, from her Twitter account. And it became very apparent that this was just the strategy she deployed, not just to Midas Touch, Mm -hmm. but that when anybody would criticize her, Um, rather than try to debate these views, rather than try to argue why she thought these crazy views were were valid. It's it's always just a a point that's worth mentioning before kind of getting into that. It's like when these Kevin McCarthy's talk about um, you're canceling Dr. Seuss, you're canceling Dr. Seuss, and then he reads Green Egg and Ham. No one has any issue with Green Egg and Ham. What what the private organization, the Dr. Seuss Corporation as a private corporation had issues with is that there was some portrayals of the Asian community yeah. um, in very racist ways and black and brown communities in very racist ways. And the and show so <laughs> if you wanted if, if you, if you, Kevin McCarthy, as a congressman, want to make the argument that that you're in favor of it, hold up the real pictures. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, if you're going to do these stupid PR stunts that you do um, where you gaslight people, when the military of Guam comes and the uh, the National Guard from Guam, uh, men and women who serve our country, you know, heroically come to your office to speak to you. When you say that they're not even affiliated with the United States and they're a foreign country and they come to speak to you, you hide in your congressional office. Right. That's what she did yesterday. She hid in her congressional office and she and she sent out an aide to talk to them. So all they do is hide, hide, hide. So with respect to this instance, Marjorie Taylor Greene blocked us and we brought a federal lawsuit. Our two firms together, Midas Touch v. Marjorie Taylor Greene. And tell us about that lawsuit.
1: Yeah, that's great. And and listen, back on that last point, the, the Republican Party has so lost its way that it's so it's so worried about cancel culture, and Dr. Seuss and the Muppet Show uh, that it's lost its way as terms of conservative values. I mean, I'm a Democrat, but I, as as with you, I have friends that I respect that are traditional conservatives and libertarians, and, and this is not that party. But we should be careful. One last thing for, for the followers of Midas Touch. Don't be distracted by this smokescreen of The Muppet Show and um, Dr. Seuss, because while they're doing that, that is giving them cover while they're canceling voting rights, which we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show. That's what we got to keep our eye on the prize, is what they're doing about voting rights in America, and forget the Dr. Seuss debate. But as to Marjorie Taylor Greene, after they blocked you, blocked Midas Touch, and this is interesting for the followers, not just on her, actually not on her official Twitter account. She didn't really use her official Twitter account, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, for much of anything. She tweeted on it once or twice a day, where the action really was it is, is, is on her personal account that she had before she was elected and then after, much like Donald Trump. He barely used the at POTUS Twitter. He always used the at real Donald Trump Twitter, even after he was elected. So the side issue here is, can the use of a private Twitter account by a public official, can that that be protected under the First Amendment? In other words, if she blocks Midas, which she did, even if it's on her personal account, can that violate the First Amendment? And the answer to that under the case law, including some recent cases brought by the Knight Foundation at Columbia against Trump, and others, including AOC, is that a, a private Twitter account that's in the hands of a public official that's really used uh, as the official uh, arm of the social media for that, for that uh, public official can um, uh, lead to First Amendment protection if they do something wrong. You know, the first argument was, what's my private account? Well, that doesn't work when you're a public official. And we had a side-by-side comparison that we used both in the lawsuit and with her lawyers. And we said, she's tweeting twice a day from her public account, but from her private account, she's tweeting every 20 minutes, including fundraising drives and campaigns and all sorts of horrible attacks, inappropriate attacks on transgender and other policies in the Biden administration. That is her official account for all intents and purposes, de facto. And there's a, and by blocking Midas touch, the argument goes, she has destroyed or prevented Midas Touch from participating in the public square, which is, which is the, the equivalent of going into your, your local park, getting on a soapbox and being able to speak freely in this country under the First Amendment. If I take away your box and I gag you, I have violated, and I'm the government, I have violated your First Amendment rights. I do the same thing electronically in social media if I ban and bar you and mute you from my official social media channel, because you have the right, Midas Touch does, and others to participate in that public square with a freedom of expression that's now been denied you because you've been electronically bound and gagged. That's the premise of the lawsuit.
0: And we should now talk about what real cancel culture is because the irony is What Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing as a government official who exercises the power of the federal government was attempting to cancel Midas Touch. What is the concern of true cancel culture is will the president of the United States or a powerful government official who commands a military stand on a stage or use his Twitter account? to attack private individuals in foreign countries. Cancel culture often is a dictator, a Putin, a Kim Jong-un, actually picking people out and killing them. Um, And we were moving in that direction, frankly, with Donald Trump. Thank God he's not elected again because what he was doing was using the weight and The faculties of the most powerful position in the world of all history to target his enemies one by one and to affirmatively harm them and cancel them one by one. You just think about even in my, the course of my representation, you know, with Colin Kaepernick, it was one of the very first examples. I remember the day very quick, very. Very uh, a, a ton. It was in Huntsville, Alabama. Very clearly, was the word in Huntsville, Alabama. Donald Trump gave the speech. I think it was September twentieth uh, of uh, twenty seventeen. Um, get that son of a bitch off the field, you know. And that was one of the opening salvos. And I'm going to attack private individuals and use my power to do that. He continued to do that. Um, we see in the news recently. Um, the Trump working with a law firm, McGuire Woods, um, to one turn uh, voice of America. We'll talk about what that is um, into his own propaganda arm a la North Korea, a la what what RT, what Putin has in Russia, what North Korea has, um, and to purge employees um, by utilizing a private law firm. In this case, it was McGuire Woods um, to target enemies yeah. of Trump and people in there who were disloyal to Trump. That's what, that's what true cancel culture is, right?
1: Well, listen, I, you're exactly right. Let, let's, give, let's give a further example. You had a president at the time who used the language, as you said, of despots and dictators. He literally said, I mean, it brought it, 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 it put a chill down my spine the first time I heard it. And I never, I have never recovered from it. He called the press. <laughs> the enemy of the people. First of all, let's just bring this out, put this out on the table. The Russians and the Chinese have actively worked on social media behind the scenes to foment discontent in America, to drive a wedge between people because there is nothing they would rather have than a destabilized America where, they're arguing with, where people are arguing with each other, and, and they have been doing that in a brainwash campaign for years, which also impacted the election. So people that think they're not being manipulated by the Russian and the Chinese, who are working day and night on social media, they love, uh, they love the attacks on Black Lives Matter that have been brought by the Republicans. They love uh, the, the press being attacked on a regular basis and the language of dictators being used by the president of the United States because it destabilizes America. They don't want America to get a vaccine. They want America to be back on its heels. And the fact that people have been manipulated by the Russians and the Chinese on their social media feeds for years is something that's not talked about enough. But to hear a president go after a a governor like Whitmer in Michigan which led to her almost being kidnapped and killed and him not taking personal responsibility for that, for him not taking personal responsibility for the capital attack, which, which is a cause and effect result from the language he used moments before they launched that assault on, on democracy, um, is, is chilling uh, that we had gotten that far. But but, you know, organizations like Midas Touch and what you and I do for a living, we're on the front lines of making sure that the First Amendment and freedom of the press is protected, because without it, we don't have a democracy. There's no doubt
0: about it. And and speaking about the what despots do, um, you know, they have their arms um, uh, in you know, foreign countries through kind of propaganda arms. You know, Russia has RT. Um, And what Trump was trying to do with Voices of America, and for those who don't know, Voices of America is an international broadcaster. It's funded by the United States Congress. It's the largest and oldest U.S.-funded international broadcaster. You may not know about VOA or Voice of America here because it's primarily intended for foreign audiences across the globe. But Donald Trump saw VOA as a propaganda arm. And so it was recently revealed that through a no-bid contract, a law firm called McGuire Woods, which was paid as much as $3 million as part of this confidential no-bid federal contract. I mean, just that fact alone, a confidential no-bid federal contract. Like You know you're
1: doing something wrong when you're getting a $3 million no-bid contract anonymously.
0: And it's not like, a, you know, some secret operation of like a B-2 fighter jet where yeah. you couldn't post the the you couldn't post the bid. You know, it's yeah. it's it's to work for Voices of America. Um, and the idea was to basically pay McGuire Woods, Woods um, to pour over employees at Voice of America's records and social media communications, compiling dossiers on the employees to basically purge anybody who was disloyal, and to turn Voices of America into a propaganda machine to bolster Trump's image abroad. And we saw these. Remember these, um, you know, these these press conferences where Benjamin Netanyahu, who Trump would always call Bibi, who himself is under their own version of a federal prosecution in Israel, so Israel would not be at war with certain countries, and they've always been at peace. But then Trump would announce existing, he would announce peace deals where there was already peace to begin with, and, and claim credit for things. I mean, he, and he lined up like a bunch of these press conferences. Do you remember before yeah. where he would have all the leaders, Jared Kushner would be there and they would declare like a ceasefire, and there
1: was never fire.
0: <laughs> Israel's been dealing with these countries forever, and it, it has was to just be a fire in order.
1: There has to be a fire in order to be a ceasefire. Yeah. So is there anything
0: illegal with what McGuire yeah. Woods is doing? McGuire Woods, so everybody knows, is like a Jones day. In our world, these are large two-name or three-name law firms with sometimes hundreds, but usually thousands of lawyers. They represent large corporations. They pay young associates about $180,000 a year from the top law schools. They take the best and brightest and have them pour over just documents all day. It's like the you go to these top law schools. All you're doing is learning this incredible stuff. You go to these firms and they that. literally just have you sit there for 100 hours a week, pouring through documents to find whatever, or to or to create arbitration clauses to prevent people from having their day in court. But anyway, McGuire Woods is one of those two-name firms. But anything that they have to worry about?
1: Yeah, I think they do. And look, as a graduate and alumni of what we call big law, right, I was at one of those two-name firms. I was at Scad and Arps to start my career. You know, I have to tell you, now having been a lawyer for 30 years and, and worked at what we call the, the American lawyer does a ranking every year of law firms and we call them, lawyers like you and I call it the Law rank. And these AMLAW 10, 20 and 50 size law firms, I have to tell you, they've lost their way. There've been more stories in the last few years about the Skadden Arpses of the world, McGuire Woods, Jones Day for money, taking on questionable, ethically questionable representations. Unfortunately, my firm that I worked at, I'm an alumni of scadden was front page New York Times with a scandal about the work they did for the Ukraine government that, that, that in which they've paid tens of millions of dollars to settle uh, with the federal government over their work there. Jones Day with the work that you described and McGuire Woods who gets $3 million to basically be a, a stooge and a tool of the Trump administration to create an enemies list at the VOA to to purge it of people that were not pro-Trump. How is that an appropriate role for a big law law firm with ethical ethics, ethical guidelines, boundaries, and rules of, of professional conduct? It isn't. And big law has lost its way because like a shark that has to move in order to survive, big law has to continue to bring in these tremendous revenue streams in order to prop up their infrastructure and to pay all those 180,000 or $500,000 associates. I and mean, there's only so many document productions that you can staff 20 people on. And so they're always looking for ethically questionable revenue streams. And this is how they get into problems. If, if every lawyer that runs those firms would take out on a yearly basis, the rules of professional conduct that their bar license is tied to and review it and remember that this is a profession that is that is founded on ethics they would turn down this work it wouldn't even be questionable i tell i tell a uh, a, a personal story that's a, that's a little bit humorous i had to take the i took the bar twice once in new york and then 5 years later in florida when i moved because most states there's no reciprocity you have to retake the test So there's two parts of the test for those that are out there listening. There's the the practical side, which is substantive law that you need to know to pass the test. And then there's the ethics, the ethics test that you have to always take. And so when I was a young lawyer and I hadn't started my career yet, um, I got my ethics score and I got my, I got my substantive score in New York and I passed. And in Florida, five years later, after I'd been in practice for five years, exactly what you would have thought happened, happened. My substantive score went up because I've been in practice and I understood the law a little bit better. But my ethics score went down a couple of points because things that looked absolutely unethical when I was a young lawyer, as I got older, I was like, well, maybe if we get a waiver, maybe there's a way to take that case. (laughs) And And it just shows you, it's not that I became more unethical as time went on. It's just, you, you, you do lose your way a little bit. You have to remind yourself. You and I look at a case and we go, that's not right. That's not ethical. That's black and white. But these big law firms, because of tremendous economic pressure, lose their way in the thicket of ethics. And this is how they end up. we end up being able to tell these terrible stories. There's going to be liability for McGuire Woods. There's going to be ethical investigations led by bar associations about the proper role of law firms many of which sided with Trump. Look, you wanna be a Republican oriented law firm and just represent Republican causes, this is America. You're allowed to do that, but you can't cross the line and become an arm of voter suppression and continue to challenge proper and fair elections in an undemocratic way, just because you've been hired and given a retainer. That's not the proper role of a professional legal uh, law firm in this culture.
0: And I want to get into that, Michael, as the last topic before we wrap up our first legal AF. And for those listening on our future legal AFs, now that you know our background, we will be digging deeper into more stories will be the overall format. I thought that the first one was important that you get to know Michael, you get to know me, you get to know our backgrounds, you get to know the cases that we did together through Midas Touch. We can talk about some other cases that we are working on together, but I do not want to give away all of that on the first podcast. So you're going to have to keep on listening and follow some of our top yeah. cases, it's including a- our ongoing case right it's now, a- it's a- Kanye West, You've which created. I will just tease yeah. and I will leave you to listen to on the next one where we talk about. But going to the last point, voter suppression. We talked about law firms aiding and abetting voter suppression. Um, There are corporations who are now stepping up, particularly in Georgia, um, Coca-Cola, Home Depot, who are opposing these efforts. But the lesson that the GOP, who I now call the GQP, who everybody should call the GQP, the lesson that they've learned, apparently, is is not. is how do we make it, is not how we actually open up the vote to people. It's how do we make it more difficult? Um, They looked at what happened on January 6th and said, you know, that was bad because everybody could literally see it. So now let's work behind the scenes to literally suppress the vote and to prevent people from even having their day in court. What they're upset about is they didn't do a good enough job to preclude people from voting in the first place. Um, that is the sick lesson the GQP has learned. So, in Georgia, there are, and many states from Arizona, Florida. Uh, Michigan, you know, literally, there have been hundreds yeah. of hundreds of pieces of legislation. It seems that what the GQP is doing across the country while the Democrats are trying to get, you know, individuals relief. And this is just the fact the Democrats are trying to get people relief. Okay. Democrats are trying to get you stimulus checks. They're trying to get infrastructure done. They're yeah. trying to get um, you know vaccines out. Like that's just a fact of what it is. You may want to debate with me, is the cost too high? Is the cost too low? That would be a normal Democrat conservative debate. And we could have the debate on cost, but what we shouldn't have a debate about is that we need infrastructure, we need vaccines, yeah. we need we need relief for people who who are. You could become homeless. But what the GQP is fighting for are bills like this one in Georgia, two bills in Georgia that would have sweeping changes to voter access, including stopping no excuse mail in voting, curtailing early voting on Sundays, limiting access to drop boxes and restricting early voting hours.
1: Go back this is six-
0: specifically to target the record turnout of black and Latino let's, voters.
1: Go back. Let's go back to that for a minute. I And I agree with you. Florida has a similar thing going on. And, and what our followers need to understand is there's there's always been a tension between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party over voter turnout. Because the the historically, the more voter turnout there is, the more likely a Democrat wins. Always. The Republicans have always been a narrower party, a party that has that difficulty winning national office, notwithstanding the Trump anomaly. And and whenever you have high voter turnout, you normally have a Democrat win. When you have lower voter or voter suppression, you have a Republican win. And they've learned that lesson. And so what they've done is, and it targets minorities, Georgia in particular, is really callow attack, a, a racist attack on black, the Black voters. As an example, there is a, uh, a very successful concept in every state, which is called souls to polls. And that is bringing buses to churches, primarily black churches, in places like Georgia and Florida, and making sure in early voting that happens on a Sunday that the voters get to the polls and that they vote. Why does that scare the crap out of the, the Republican Party? Because those people generally vote Democrat. So, how do you suppress the Democratic vote? You don't allow churchgoers on Sunday to vote early. It is despicable. It is a, a bald-faced attack. There is no justification other than voter suppression and black discrimination to eliminate Sunday voting, period. And what, what, what we hope is that Congress, with the Senate resolution number one and, co- and the uh, House resolution number one, if it gets passed in the Senate, it's already been passed in the House, will totally change voting as we know it in America allowing for the complete expansion of early voting, of uh, uh, mail voting, uh, voting uh, in all different, uh, in different types of ways, Sunday voting, longer voting hours, more voting hours, um, no more gerrymandering, which eliminates or creates districts that uh, discriminates against minorities and make sure that white Congress get elected If that bill gets passed, that should counteract all of these state-by-state attempts to undermine the the Voting Rights Act and undermine voting. And then we've got the Supreme Court, which we'll talk about on our next show, which is considering what to do about the Voting Rights Act and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which goes to whether restrictions on voting harm minorities, which is the core the core purpose of the voting rights, voting rights act is to avoid that. The Supreme Court is currently considering whether certain states have violated Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. So we've got we've got all this going on right now that we're gonna to have to closely follow. States trying to change their voting laws in order to suppress the vote. The federal government trying to cut them off at the pass by passing the, the Senate bill, number one, make it make it into law which will totally uh, eradicate the state's ability to control local elections and the Supreme Court ruling on the Voting Rights Act about whether all of these things or any of these things are constitutional.
0: And ultimately, for me, you know, and why I became a lawyer um, is I want to fight with ideas. I want to fight for what I believe in. And, you know, we talk about what true cancel culture was under Donald Trump. We talk about true cancel culture, the GQP GQP trying to suppress um, votes. You know, that rigging, that cheating is antithetical to what a debate should be in a democratic society. At the end of the day, we should put forth our views, you know, and all of these views, if they were, I say this on the Midas Touch podcast, which is if you presented the infrastructure bills and vaccine distributions and COVID relief and $15 minimum wage as referendum items, 75, 80% of Americans support these bills. And at the end of the day, if you have bipartisan support of the people, those ideas at the end of the day is what should prevail. And what we shouldn't have is people rigging the system and cheating. But that's why you have myself, you have Michael Popak. You have legal af always here to hold people accountable so i think this was a great first episode um i don't want to give away too much of our stories um but it was great doing this with you michael it was great after kind of starting this almost a year ago now with the audience that we have to have you know gotten this far we appreciate everybody the Legal AF, we're gonna be doing once a week for now. We're gonna be dropping these on the Midas Touch podcast channel. Eventually, we're going to be moving off the Midas Touch channel, but we wanted to connect with you through this already built-in audience. Any
1: last words, Michael? No, I think it's great. Um, you, you and I started, like you said, a year ago. It's amazing what you've done with Midas Touch. And I'm, I'm just so honored to be a part of it. And, and we put words into action. You know, it's easy for, I think that's the distinguishing feature of you and I as commentators and analysts on Legal AF, and the difference between us and the other legal podcasts, just to talk about them for a minute, is that you and I are work-a-day trial lawyers that do this for a living. We're not just talking about our cases because they're interesting to us. We're talking about cases that you and I are doing that are on the forefront and the cutting edge of some of the most important First Amendment and other civil rights issues in America. And you and I have the perspective of not just being talking heads, but going into the courtrooms of America, of representing the Colin Kaepernick's of America on issues that are that are so important. And as you said, holding people accountable, not just blather on a podcast, as interesting as it is, but actually we, you and I leave these little Zoom boxes in these rooms and we go out into the courthouses of America and make new law and hold and speak truth to power, and hold, hold our elected officials accountable.
0: Thank you for joining this episode of Legal AF, Ben Mycelis and Michael Popak signing off.